So uh, you should have uh, Deuteronomy 9. We're working our way through uh, the kind of main highlights of Deuteronomy. And we're in Deuteronomy 9, and that should be in your orders of service. <coughs> Hear, Israel. You are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, I stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made an idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone, so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God, you had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. Then, once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so arousing his anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time, I prayed for, prayed for Aaron too. Also, 
I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. And then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. You also made the Lord angry at Taborah, at Massa, in Kibroth Hatavar. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, Go up and take possession of the land I have given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. I lay prostrate before the Lord those forty days and forty nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Heavenly Father, we... uh, read that passage and we recognise ourselves so often in that rebellious nature of uh, the Israelites. Lord, uh, forgive us. We're about to sing of the uh, sins that we forget that we've committed. Lord, we know that we have both uh, turned from you, but also we've sought salvation in so many other things in our day-to-day lives. Please forgive us and help us to turn back to you. Thank you. Just like the Israelites, we have uh, an intercessor on our behalf, the ultimate, the greatest intercessor in Jesus. So please be with Nigel as he opens this passage to us. Please speak deep into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please take your seats and good morning. Good to see you. Thank you for the encouragement that someone gave me. Hadn't been on a week's holiday. Where are your crutches, they said. Um, Didn't need those. I want to tell you about a man called Nathan Cole. I mentioned him before. Nathan Cole was an uneducated man. He was a farmer who lived in Connecticut in about the uh, middle of the 18th century. In 1741, he got on his horseback, not on his Zephira, like all Christians have Zephiras these days. He got on his horseback and he went to uh, ride to an open field where there was a certain man called George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a preacher. He was a powerful preacher and he was preaching in the open air, and uh, Nathan Cole wrote down in his diary these words. My hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Here's a man who's worked all his life thinking that he can get into God's good books by doing the right things, by not saying the wrong words, by going to the right places, by having the right religious outlook and posture. And he goes to hear a Christian man explain the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and he comes back with a heart wound because he realises that his life's foundation has been broken up by the gospel. He cannot live a good enough life. He cannot attain enough moral perfection. He cannot say the right words. He cannot do the right things. His foundation is smashed up like a concrete jackhammer by the Spirit of God, by the hearing of the proclamation of the gospel from a man called George Whitfield in 1741. 
41. And so he writes down, I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Now I want to tell you that true account is not a story. It's a historical account because Deuteronomy chapter 9 is all about righteousness. It's all about righteousness. Look at the beginning of the passage, verses uh, 1 and 2. Moses, the preacher, is preaching again. He says, pin back your ears, verse 1, Hear, O Israel. And then he begins to say, just in case you've forgotten, remember where you're heading, you're heading into the promised land, and just in case you've forgotten, let me tell you about who are going to oppose you. Verse 1, 2, and into verse 3. The nations are greater and stronger than you. Thanks a lot, Moses. The large cities are huge that you're going to face. The walls go up to the sky. I'm talking about skyscrapers here, many years before they were made in London. Moses is saying this. Left to yourselves, you've got no chance. If you're going to fight in your own strength, you've got no hope. You're not strong enough. You're not big enough. Your technology is not good enough. You've left your um, AK-47s at home. You've got no chance to win this battle because of the size of the enemies and the enormity of the opposition that you face. You've got no chance. But verse 3, remember this, God is the one who goes across ahead of you. He is a consuming or a, a devouring fire. Moses is saying, God is going to be a divine warrior. He's going to ride out, as it were, on his horse before you. He's going to lay to waste all his enemies that oppose him and his loving rule just as he promised, verse 3. It's not about you, it's all about him. It's not about the strength of your arm, it's about the power of the arm of God. It's about the promises that he's made that he's going to keep. It's about his strength and your weakness. But you're going to forget that, says Moses to Israel, so I'm going to tell you again and again and again. Now why does he need to say this? It's an issue of righteousness but I want us to think about these two issues that I think are underneath it. There's forgetfulness, but point number one, Moses is standing before a people who struggle with pride. A proud people. Look at verses four to six with me. Number one, a proud people. You know, in every culture, in every generation, in every time on the history of the world, that's a big statement, but I've been on holiday, so I'm in the mood for big statements. In every generation, in every culture that's ever existed, there is a hunger that manifests itself in certain ways. It's a hunger for importance, it's a hunger for lastingness, there's a hunger for glory, there's a need for approval, there's a, a want for a record to be given to you, a verdict that makes your life make sense. That's why middle-aged men have struggles in their life, because they think as they get through their 20s when they're so optimistic, when they get to their 30s and they think, they're going to be a good dad and they're going to be a good worker. When they get to their 40s and beyond, they think, is this all there is to life? That's why suicide and depression is a real present danger for men and for women. But if I'm right, and this is not just a post-holiday big statement, why is it that there is an issue in every generation, in every human heart and in every culture that comes out in different flavours, in different tones, in different hues, in different sounds, but why is the need there? The need for a verdict is there, the need for glory, the need for permanence, the, the hunger for approval is there because it was there right at the beginning. In Genesis 1, 2 and 3, when God spoke the world into being, there was perfection. 
Adam and Eve are first parents who are real people. They knew fully the approval of God. They had the acceptance of God. They had the verdict of God to the max. They knew God face to face. They were able to walk around naked. That's not a sort of an impure thing. That, that's a picture of perfection and openness and joy and satisfaction. And no need to hide. No need for fake news. No need for spin. Because they knew their maker, and most importantly of all, the maker knew them perfectly. They had a perfect verdict. They were absolutely certain of God's approval. And that means they didn't need the approval of anybody else. But, but when the atomic bomb of our sin and rebellion went off in chapter 3, and ever since that point, and that's why I struggle with it, and you struggle with it, and every culture struggles with it too, there is a deep longing for the approval of people because we feel that we have lost the approval of God. We've lost the recognition of God. We've lost the verdict of God. It's an issue of righteousness. And so we're hungry for approval. We're hungry for a verdict. We're hungry for meaning because the approval that we once had, the certainty that we once knew, we lost as we turned our back on God. It's the, it's the issue of righteousness. What is it that Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy 9? Righteousness means to be approved. Righteousness means to be accepted. Righteousness needs to measure up to a standard, to pass scrutiny. And it's a huge problem that you and I will deal with every day of our lives unless we understand the gospel deeply and meditate on it and steep our hearts in it on a daily basis. Look at verses 4 to 6. It's a proud people that stand before Moses. Moses is warning them. Verse 4, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Verse 5, it is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Verse 6, understand then that it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. Three times in three verses, it's not because of you that this victory is going to be given to you. It's because of God. It's because of God's plan and purposes. It's because of the strength of his arm in light of your weakness. It's the strength of his promises in light of your unfaithfulness that God will defeat his enemies and give purely because of his grace, purely because of the promises that he's made, purely for his glory and the extension of his kingdom, will he give to you this inheritance. You don't deserve it. You've not earned it. But God loves to bless an undeserving people. <coughs> when it comes to sin and righteousness, very often we don't think in the way that the Bible describes those two words. We use measuring sticks. We compare ourselves with other people. Sin and uh, righteousness, we can think of a practice or a behaviour. Sin and righteousness, that's external. That's when you mix with the wrong crowd. That's when you read the wrong books, when you watch the wrong films, when you, you go to the wrong bars and clubs and pubs. 
That's when you mix with the sinful people or the unrighteous people. Sin and righteousness is external according to our standards. And if it's external, then you can get around it and you can become more righteous or less sinful by reading the right books, by going to the right places, not the wrong places, by mixing with the right people, not the wrong people. It's all external. It's behaviour. But when it comes to the Bible, the Bible describes righteousness. There is an external nature to it, but it's an issue of the heart. And behaviour is always an overflow for what is happening on in the heart. And Moses is holding up a mirror, and he says, you might think that you are better than those people, the enemies of God. You might think that you are uh, stronger or more righteous or have a cleaner way of living, or God will be more pleased with you because you're his people than those people, the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Anakites, and all the otherites. But it's not an issue of externals, it's a matter of the heart. And Moses is saying, you need to remember when you go in to the promised land that God has given you by his grace and according to his promises, they will be defeated, but it's not about you. It's not your righteousness, it's God's grace and his power and the strength of his arm not your puny little efforts, because you're a proud people. That's the problem of self-righteousness. We think we can measure up to God's standards by our own efforts, and we can't. Moses hasn't finished. Verse 7, you're not just a proud people, you have forgetful hearts. Point number two, you have forgetful hearts. Verse 7, there is a fine line in my spirit over a number of things. I get over the line, the line's behind me, often. There's a fine line in my spirit between, um, how should I say, godly determination. I think often, and until my wife checks me, I'm in a determined, in a godly, motivated way. But very often there is a, like a three-stranded cord. Godly determination and sinful stubbornness in my spirit, especially when I was younger and it still rears its ugly head like a pop-up kind of uh, puppet at the top of my jumper. Sinful stubbornness and godly pride. Sometimes I get the mix completely wrong. When I was younger, especially, I struggled with anger before I became a Christian. I had a lot of anger. I remember I once accidentally punched my dad on the jaw. We were sparring in the kitchen, as a father and son do, and I, he said, this is how you give a dead arm to someone's son, and you aim for the T on the top of the uh, uh, shirt there, and I went for it and I missed I whacked him straight on the jaw. I've never been so scared in my life. I thought he was going to hit me back, but he didn't, thankfully. I struggled with anger, and I struggled with a sinful stubbornness of spirit. What is stubbornness? It's a refusal to obey, even when it's in your best interests. You dig your heels in. It's best described in the animal kingdom as the, the ox or the mule who puts their heels in and you're dragging them along like a, an obedient child or not a very obedient child. That's what our hearts are like. We're, we're proud people and we're also forgetful. Verse 7, Moses is holding up a mirror in the face of God's people to say you're proud and now he's saying you're also forgetful. Remember this, verse 7, and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. Don't forget it. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you've been a rebellious people against the Lord. Later on in verse 22, there are three other times in the history of Israel where they were greedy, when they were complaining in the face of God's kind provision, 
when they thought they hadn't got enough. They, they, they ate so much quail in one instance, they vomited it back up because they did not take God at his word. They'd forgotten his faithfulness. And Moses is saying, verse 7, verse 22, you are a proud people, and it's an issue of the heart. Think about, again, what these people have seen. God, through the authority and leadership of Moses, the weak leadership, but the leadership nevertheless have brought his people from underneath the heel of Pharaoh to liberty. There has been salvation, there has been redemption, there's been a passing over and a provision miraculously of the Red Sea, this huge barrier in front of God's people was divided by the Spirit of God and God's people walked through and the enemies of God were judged under the waters of the Red Sea. They've seen and heard the story from their parents of of God defeating the ten plagues, the ten gods, lowercase g, of Egypt, and God showing the strength of his arm by bringing them out. They've heard his mighty provision. They've seen the uh, glory of God descending on Mount Sinai and hearing the thunder of God and seeing the lightning of God and seeing something of the majesty of God. They've seen all of that stuff. They've experienced it and heard it from their parents. And yet when Moses disappears, when Moses goes up Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, suddenly they have spiritual amnesia. And what we've got here is the worst account of spiritual backsliding possibly in the whole Bible. Look at verse 12. Moses comes down from the shadow of the glory of God with the uh, mountain of God burning and smoke and trembling and And the people are afraid because their leader has disappeared. And so what do they do, having seen and experienced all of God's majesty and might and power? Aaron, Moses has disappeared. We don't know where he's gone. Please, will you make a God for us? We're going to have a whip round. We'll have all our gold jewellery. And please, will you make for us a God so that we can worship? Moses has been gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and yet they think that God has abandoned them. Here they are at the foot of the mountain of God and they think that God is nowhere to be seen or found. He's deserted them. He's not given them a second thought. And so Aaron, the prophet and priest of God, makes for them a golden calf so that they might bow down and worship him. They've gone from spiritually being boiling hot, not to being lukewarm, they're now freezing cold. In muscular terms, it's uh, atrophy. You know when you don't use your muscles, they start to waste away. Spiritually, they've had 40 days without using their spiritual muscles, and now their muscles aren't there anymore. And friends, when you read these words, isn't it so easy to think, I would never do that. This is a historical incident that I would never do. I never struggle with following God. My spiritual muscles are pretty pumped up right now. I look good when I look in the spiritual mirror. But if there's one thing that we're to learn from this, it's how quickly that the spiritual fuel in our heart can dissipate. Our spiritual muscles can atrophy. Our spiritual memories can go blank. Our relationship can cool. How can anybody forget the Red Sea? How can anybody at the foot of the mountain turn their back on God and say, you've forgotten us. We want to worship something else. They know it's idolatrous. They know they shouldn't be worshipping anyone else but the Lord Almighty. And yet Aaron leads them and is obedient to their request. 
I would never do that. I would never get spiritually cold. I would never get confused. I would never turn away. Friends, if you're thinking that, can I warn you, either you're not a Christian or you've not been a Christian very long. And I tell that compassionately. The only reason you think that this could not be you is if you've not been a Christian very long or if you're not a Christian at all. If you know your own heart, if you're honest with yourself, every Christian here who's been a Christian for a while, who has one or two spiritual grey hairs, shall we say, they know that our hearts don't change. My heart doesn't change. This could be me and it has been me. Times when God has felt close and times when God has felt a million miles away. Sometimes you feel that God is close to you, that he's real to you, he's present, he's just there. You feel the warmth of his embrace. It's like you're holding his hand. But sometimes he feels a million miles away and you're spiritually dry, he's spiritually far away. He's not real to you anymore. Back in the middle of January, uh, Joe and I took the kids to Hampton Court. It's a brilliant place, especially when it's half price. We were there, it's a freezing cold day. We had the, uh, the app on our phone and we were doing some games and we went to the fav- my favourite part of the whole of Hampton Court, which is the uh, Tudor Kitchens. And in the Tudor Kitchens, because I like food, if you didn't know, there's an almighty fire. It's not a, a modern uh, stove that's enclosed and you can just kind of shut the glass door and the fire uh, consumes the wood. This is an m- almighty fire, a big tube of expanse that they would put hog roasts on. Three or four hog roasts could be carried at any one time for Henry VIII and his girth and his court. This fire was three feet wide, it was three feet deep and it was two feet high. There were two people attending it. Me being me, I said, what sort of wood are you burning there? because it's really going up so well and I can feel the warmth of it. We walked away, we came back because we were cold to get some more warmth from it. He said, well, this is well-seasoned wood. I can see that. It's not green, is it? No, because it's not hissing. I was trying to show off. Um, He said, there's oak here. I said, what else have you got there? There's some cedar and there's some spruce here. Spruce, really? Yeah, but it's well-seasoned spruce. Okay, I'll let you off. Friends, that is a great picture of the human heart. That experience is so foreign to us, not as a log-burning stove, but a fire that's there that needs attending to. Because we're used, in our experience, when we're cold, what do we do? We turn on the thermostat. Just one click and in 10 minutes or warm, your house is a far more inviting place to be. But here are two people that had these huge tongs that were taking big pieces of oak and putting it on top of the fire. They were attending to it. They were making sure that it was structurally safe, they were making sure that the logs weren't going to fall forward because there were children pretty close nearby. They were making sure that there's enough good fuel for the fire to be hot. Now that is a pretty helpful image for what it means to be a Christian. The Christian life is far less like the experience that we have of heating our homes. Whether we use Hive or an app on our phones and we set it before we even get there now, The experience of the human heart, if you're a Christian, is far more like a Tudor fireplace at Hampton Court than it is a British gas boiler. It's not a combi boiler that you can just start off whenever you want. The human heart, if you're a Christian, needs to be like the Tudor fireplace that needs attending to, that needs care, that needs fuel. And if you do not attend to it, if you do not put fuel on the fire of your heart, it will go out. And it's not something that can just be rekindled excusing the pun, with a press of a thermostatic button. It needs to be tended. Your heart is far more like an open fire than it is 
to be a combi boiler. And that's why Moses is saying this to everybody. This is what you were like. Verse 7, you are a proud people. You are a forgetful people. Remember how your parents treated the Lord God Almighty and learn from their lessons. Do not repeat their failures. But the human heart doesn't change. So what hope do they have? And what hope do we have if we are a proud people and a forgetful people? Thankfully, verse 12 is there. Here's the hope. Point number three, a pleading priest. We're a forgetful people, we're a proud people, but in verse 12 we begin to have revealed to us a pleading priest. When I was at school, I was sucked at English. You can tell that if you read my sermons, but they work for me. I was awful. I would cry before Mrs. Parkin's English tests. I was awful at creative writing. My spellings were at tears on a weekly basis on a Monday night, I think, with my red folder. It's all coming back to me. I better move on. But there's one thing that I was just the worst at. I, was, I, I excelled at my worstness. That's a good sign of how good I am at English. I was awful at grammar. I was awful at grammar. I could never understand it, but now I realise how important it is. It has a lot of weight in verses 12 to verse 14. Because of the pronouns. If you're as bad as English grammar at me, class, listen up, pronouns, that's words to do with people. I, me, we, you, they. Verse 12. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I've commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven and I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. Here is God looking at the actions of his people, verse 14 and verse 19 tell us twice that God is angry enough. His nostrils, literally in Hebrew, are red enough, they're flaring enough that he's going to smite them. He's going to destroy his own people. Now you may think if you're not yet a Christian that this is God just going off the handle again. God is capricious. No. The wrath of God is God's settled, measured, appropriate anger at sin. Whether that be in another part of the nations or in his own people. It's a settled, measured, appropriate response from a loving and holy God. It's not God flying off the handle or having a bad day. What hope have God's people got in the light of their sin and God's holiness, his majesty and their rebelliousness. Verse 16 and 17, even Moses is full of wrath and anger. He comes down the mountain, reflecting the glory of God, having enjoyed God for 40 days and 40 nights. And what does he hear and what does he see and what does he do? He sees and hears rebellion and carousing and worship, false worship of a golden calf. And he takes the two stone covenant, or two stone tablets of the covenant, and smashes them upon the floor as a visual sign to say, You've broken the covenant. He didn't trip and stumble, he deliberately smashed them on the ground to say, You've broken the covenant you made with God and God made with you. But verse 18 is astonishing. If God's nostrils are flared with anger, if Moses' heckles are up because he's so angry at the rebelliousness of God's people and at the actions of his 
uh, of Aaron, the priest of God. What does he do? Verse 18 is remarkable. The next thing we read in verse 18 is that Moses is prostrate before the Lord. Moses falls on his face before God and begins to pray and begins to plead for God's mercy. For 40 days and 40 nights. That's a a shorthand. You see it repeated a few times in the passage for a time of testing in the Bible. 40. Moses is pleading and fasting and begging God for mercy. Please do not smite your people. Please do not destroy them. I know you could restart the promises you gave to Abraham with me. But why does Moses pray this prayer? Not just because he wants to avert the anger of God. His big concern is for the fame and majesty of God's name. See that from verses 27 to 29. Remember your servants Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Verse 29. Your people, your inheritance that you bought by your great power and your outstretched arm. Here's Moses pleading for God not to uh, deal out the justice of God on a people who rightly deserve it, people who have turned their back on him in the most heinous and horrible way. God has been faithful and kind. They've been unfaithful and vindictive, you could say. And yet Moses is saying, don't just avert your anger. Don't just give them a free pass. My concern, God, is if you act in a way that is just and holy and right, the nations will look at you and think that you uh, have lost it. You've lost the plot. I'm concerned with your majesty and fame and name and glory amongst the nations that are looking in upon your people, that are looking at you, that will hear about this. God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but please relent. May your anger be replaced by mercy. May your wrath be somehow replaced with grace on a people who don't deserve it. They've seen all that you've done, and yet they're willingly turning their backs on you. But please, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but please have mercy on them. He's a pleading priest. And friends, in his actions we see a mirror and a shadow of the true priest, the great high priest, Jesus. On the night before the cross, King Jesus, Prophet Jesus, Priest Jesus is praying to his Father. He's surrounded by his disciples who he knows clamour for greatness. They want to be, see who's the most important and sit to his right and left. He knows there's Peter who says he'll never disown him but who will very, very soon. And yet in spite of what Jesus Christ knows of his disciples, what does he pray in John 17, the, the high priestly prayer? as he prays to his Father, as he pleads to God on their behalf and on all our behalves. Jesus prays, Father, I want you to love them. These rebels, these people are going to let me down. These people that are going to run away from me very, very soon. Father, I want you to love them even as you love me. He's pleading for them. He's pleading to God the Father to have mercy as he goes to the cross pay for the sins of the world. He's pleading with his father for mercy on a people who don't deserve it. To paraphrase, he's saying, Father, I'm the only person that's ever lived a righteous life. I'm the only one who's ever got a perfect record. I'm the only person that 
has ever loved you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. Please, Father, will you love them and treat them as if they were me? Please, will you treat them as if my record is their record? I know they've not earned it. I know they will never get there. I know they don't deserve it. But, Father, please, will you have mercy on them and will you love them even as you love me? That's the high priestly pleading prayer of Jesus. Friends, we're all after approval. We're all glory hunters. We all want a perfect record that we can never earn. But the minute you become a Christian, the minute that you are in him, all our sinful deeds are taken by Jesus Christ. They've been paid for 2,000 years ago. But all his righteousness is now ours. And so God the Father can look on each one of us, even this morning, knowing the websites you've clicked on, knowing the beds you've slept in, knowing the thoughts you've had in the past week, and God the Father looks on us because of Jesus and says, I will love you even as I love my son. Friends, you and I are utterly flawed. We're a proud people. We're an unfaithful people if we're honest enough. And yet God can look on us because of Jesus. And we are utterly righteous before him. Just remember who's praying this prayer in Deuteronomy chapter 9, by the way. His name is Moses. He was fished out of water, as the song goes. He killed an Egyptian. He disobeyed the Lord Almighty. And yet here we have a pleading priest, temporarily, 40 days and 40 nights, fasting, praying, interceding on behalf of a broken people, of a needy people. But in Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 7, we don't have a temporary high priest, we have an eternal one. We have a permanent one. A high priest who loves us forever and will intercede for us forever. Why? Hebrews 7 says, because he lives forever. He doesn't have a temporary priesthood. He has a perfect and an eternal priesthood because he always lives to intercede for his people. Here is Moses going before the Lord God Almighty and he throws himself on his mercy. He's got nothing in his hands. The law has been broken because we need grace, not law. And he goes before the Lord Almighty. He's risking his life because God is so angry at the rebelliousness of his people. But friends, Jesus didn't risk his life, but he gave it. And this passage is reminding us not about the rescued people, but about the rescuer. It's not about what we have done, it's all about grace. And in Moses, we see the pleading priest who is a shadow, an echo, an undertone of the real true high priest who didn't go up Mount Sinai, but who traveled up Mount Calvary. And as he ascended uphill, he didn't have an offering in his hands, as high priests would always have an offering, but he had a cross upon his shoulders because he would offer up himself for me and he offered up himself for you as well. I want to read to you two verses from a hymn that I wish we were singing, maybe next time. And then I'll pray at the end. Let's meditate on these words as we close. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart.
Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my saviour and my God. Let's take a minute to meditate on that and then I'll pray. Father, as we get older, we know more and more of the depths and contours of our own heart that wants to run from you, wants to rob you of your glory and snatch it for ourselves, that we think, whether we're Christians sometimes, and definitely when we're not, we think that our righteousness somehow will be good enough to please you. We uh, play in our minds and with our actions that you love us, and then you love us not, you love us and you love us not, and we, on a daily basis, pick off petals on a flower, depending on how we feel and how we perform. Father, forgive us that when we think that our righteousness is good enough, we rob you of your glory and rob Jesus of the power of his atoning sacrifice. Father, thank you so much that Jesus Christ is the risen lamb. He is our perfect, spotless righteousness. And he is a pleading priest who doesn't plead for 40 days or 40 nights, but is in heaven pleading for us even as we meet now. Father, thank you. It doesn't seem a strong enough word, but we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for King Jesus, for Prophet Jesus, for the new Israel who's Jesus, and the priest who's Jesus as well. Amen.